I were to speak in some really general terms, probably one of the most frustrating experiences that you and I go through as Christians is the continual battle with sin. Just kind of on a general level, it's just a frustrating experience in our lives. Um, and But one day, it'll all be behind us. Amen? All of it, we're going to be looking in the rearview mirror at all of that. And it'll just be behind us, and we're looking forward to that great day. Uh, but my spidey sense is telling me that some of you are really hoping that the guy standing behind this podium would give you the magic answer on putting sin to death, killing it once for all, one and done, poof, it's gone. My uh, spidey sense is also telling me that you know that that's wishful thinking. For some reason, sin has this magical ability to be resurrected once we kill it. <clears throat> so we need to continue to kill it um, through the rest of our days. It's going to be a struggle until we see Christ. But Scripture does give us some insight into dealing with our sin. And the good news is, the more we practice what God calls us to and continuing to put sin to death, the easier it gets. The more it gets to be smaller in our rearview mirror, the easier it gets. doesn't mean that's ever easy, but the easier it gets. So here's a sad fact. Uh, far too many Christians live lives that don't look very different from our non-Christian friends around us. Now why is that? Let me suggest a few reasons. Uh, you have these in your notes. We love our sin. We love our sin. Now that's kind of a stark way to put it. Because none of us as Christians want to ever just, we would never say that out loud, right? We love our sin. That would be rather unbiblical and unchristian to say such a thing. But we have to face the facts that certain sins are just pleasurable. And they're satisfying. Even if it's in a perverse way, our flesh is wicked at times. And so the fact remains that if we hated our sin like God hates our sin then we would be seriously motivated to kill it off. Another thing, um, a few reasons we don't take sin seriously is uh, we don't take sin seriously. Sorry to say, but in large measure, we don't take sin seriously enough to take serious action against it. We excuse it uh, and we toy with it way, way too much. Another reason is we fail to see how loathsome sin is to God. God not only hates our sin, he loathes it. Even one sin would result in eternal punishment from God. Even one. James 2.10 For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We fail to see how loathsome sin is to God. Another reason, we give up trying because overcoming it is too hard. We give up trying because overcoming it is too hard. If you're anything like me and you've been in the battle for a long time, there are just some sins that have proven to be very difficult to overcome. We know God is able. We know that there's power in the indwelling Holy Spirit. We know we've seen times of victory but the battle is hard, and we can get weary. And when it gets weary, we can give up, or we can give in. 
we give up trying. There's other reasons. You may uh, think of others, even as you're sitting there. But let's take a, a sobering look at sin. Let's agree together what we mean when we say sin. I think we need to look at its ugliness right in the face. Now, um, I'm writing this and wrote this uh, with you in mind, but as counselors, we need to remind ourselves that this not only applies to just our counselees, but it applies to us as well. And as we start learning this and becoming convinced of how to work in this, we are able to help our counselees in this area. So I'm addressing this all to us. Wayne Grudem defines sin this way in his systematic theology. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is missing the mark. In scripture, we see words for sin like lawlessness, transgression, unrighteousness, ungodliness, rebellion, wandering, straying from God, wickedness, impiety. To sin means to betray or revolt or rebel against God. It's treason against God. And no matter who sins against whom and what that particular sin is, all sin is first and foremost against God. All of it. There's no sin that you sin against someone else that's not against the holiness of God. In Psalm 51.4, King David said, Against you, God, you only have I sinned. Don Carson said, Sin and rebellion is the de-godding of God. He talks about that a lot. The de-godding of God. It's self-focused, self-gratifying idolatry. Tim Keller said this. He said, The root of every sin is a breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The real question is not what we're doing, but what God we're worshiping. Sin is spiritual adultery. It is spiritual unfaithfulness. In Pulling No Punches, Ralph Venning said this. He said, sin is a poison. Sinners are serpents. Sin is called vomit. Sinners are called dogs. Sin is called the stench of graves. Sinners are rotten sepulchers. Sin is called mire. Sinners, pigs. Sin is defiling, degrading. It stamps the devil's image on the human soul. Sorry, this is ugly. So just buckle up. Proverbs says that sin is folly and sinners are fools. And the way of sin is hard. The Apostle Peter said that sin, the passions, that sin, the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Sin brings guilt and shame. It hinders prayer. It can make you physically sick. It kills your desire for the word. It hurts people around you. It drives you from closeness to Christ. Wayne Mack said this, Sin has no mercy. It laughs at our pain and delights in our misery. 
and yet we love our sin. And I firmly believe we love our sin because we don't look at it this way. We don't look at how loathsome it is to God. Putting sin to death isn't easy. It's not fun. And it's not a quick one and done. It's a long-term battle until the end. So let's take a look here um, at a few things. Uh, As we battle against sin, we have a tendency to keep our heads down. We're looking at our sin and, oh, God, I hate my sin, I hate my sin. We can get hyper-focused on the battle with our flesh. But let's lift up our heads for a minute. Let's lift up our gaze. Where do we set our gaze? Number three, set your gaze on two things. Number one, keep your eyes on Jesus. The author of Hebrews said, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We need to be looking to the one who gave his life for sinners like you and me. The one who cleanses us from all sin. The one who gives us power over sin and power over the devil and his schemes. We were slaves to sin and Jesus came to redeem us from slavery to sin. 1 Peter 2.24 He gave himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Titus 2.14, we looked at this in another session. Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ came to work on us from the inside out. To do heart surgery, that's God's cross work through Jesus Christ. Among other things, he is doing surgery on our hearts. Because we know that sin comes from the heart, right? Mark 7, 21 to 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That's where they emerge. They emerge out of our hearts. They emerge out of our thoughts. You never sinned out of something by, unless you first thought of it. Unless it first came out and bubbled out of your, your wicked heart. And Jesus came to sanctify us. He came to do deep work on our hearts. To destroy the works of the devil and to empower us to grow in holiness. So keep your eyes on Jesus. Second thing, keep your eyes on the harvest. Keep your eyes on the harvest. What do I mean by that? What harvest? The the writer of Hebrews calls it the peaceful fruit of righteousness. If we keep our eyes stuck on our sin, we're going to be in misery. But keep your eyes on the vision of the harvest. What God is doing as a loving father, like we do with our own children, you know, when we stray, when we rebel, our fathers would discipline us. Not just for the sake he's mad, but so that we would grow in holiness. That's what God the Father does for us. He disciplines us for our holiness. And the fruit of that is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
Sin leads to guilt and shame. Holiness leads to peace and righteousness. That's where we keep our gaze, on the vision of peace and righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, think of the harvest. It will transform your view of what you are doing here and now. It will encourage you to tend the garden of your soul, weeding, planting, nourishing it patiently. You will then accept short-term pain or self-denial or loss for the sake of long-term gain, and you will not die but live. Keep your head up. Keep your eyes on our Savior. Keep your eyes on the prize, holiness, which leads to peace in your soul. So if we're going to make progress in our fight against sin, there are some baseline convictions that you and I need to be really, really clear on. We need to be convinced of some baseline convictions. How do we live our lives in increasing victory over sin? Number one, understand the seriousness of sin. Our sin deserves eternal punishment. Wayne Mack said, We have to see sin for what it really is. When we sin, we are missing the mark and straying from the fold. We are acting like people who are spiritually blind and deaf. We are being unfaithful to our faithful God. We are committing spiritual adultery. We are doing the very thing that God hates. We point out all of this because when we are tempted, we will always desire to minimize the seriousness of our sin. We will always attempt to minimize it. And that minimizing is a lie of the devil. It's a deception. We don't take sin seriously because we don't take God's judgment seriously. We need to remember the severity of the consequences of sin. It's sin that sends people to hell, to eternal destruction. Sin incurs the holy wrath of God. Sin sent Jesus Christ to the cross. We hear a word like uh, the fear of the Lord. You You guys, we hear that a lot. And we sometimes wonder, what does that mean? One of the things it means, in Proverbs 8.13, is, it says that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. It means to hate sin like God hates it. To learn to hate sin like God hates it. Again, from Max, sometimes even as believers, we can become numb to how awful and heinous and serious our seemingly small sins really are. One way we can gain a better understanding of the awfulness of our sin is is to look long and hard at the judgment our sin really deserves. We must look at our sins and say what God says about them. They deserve hell. We must never allow ourselves to doubt that. If we learn to look at sin that way, it will help us to hate it, and it will help us to love the one who came to save us from it. First conviction. The second one, understand the importance of a growing spiritual life. One of the most important tools in our battle against sin in the flesh is a growing devotional life, a growing love for our Savior. We need to remember this. Even as we're talking about this, our, our subject is kind of focused on killing sin. At the same time, the Christian life is not all about killing sin. The Christian life is about loving Christ, right? 
It's about knowing God, understanding God, savoring his goodness and his perfections and his majesty and his beauty, and that being the focus of our life. It's about worshiping him with our whole being. And he's revealed about himself in, in so many ways in scripture. He's revealed himself in what he has made. And we need to look at who God is and look at, and see how he's revealed himself and grow in our understanding of that and worship him for it. It fills the soul like nothing else. There's no pleasure in the world that is more glorious than knowing and savoring who God is. We cannot be victorious in the fight if we focus only on avoiding sin. We can only do this by refusing and renouncing the desires of the flesh and living in awe of the God that we serve and worshiping Him with our whole being. Living in the power of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 5.16 Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So a, a growing, healthy spiritual life is, is one important means of pushing out fleshly desires. We push out fleshly desires as we learn to savor the far superior pleasure of our relationship with God. Psalm 16.11 You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That kind of pleasure is far more pleasurable to our souls than any sin could ever be. Isaiah 55 says this. I love this passage. The prophet says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk and without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? He says, Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. This is what God wants to do. He, he says in other places, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. We need to fill ourselves with the superior pleasure of knowing God and savoring God. Think about this. How many of you have, have had a glass, you know, you're, you're washing the dishes, you get a glass and you fill it with soapy water and you swish it around, and then how do you, want, how do you get that dirty soap out of there? Well, here's one way. You just put it under the clean water under the faucet, right? I mean, some of you guys know what I'm, don't know what I'm talking about. My wife does that. <laughs> but some of you, I mean, you should do this. It's a good experiment, guys. <laughs> and you might like it. Maybe your wife will, will love you know, to keep doing that. So you put the, the soapy glass under the, the clear water coming in, filling up the glass. The clear water keeps coming, keeps coming. It starts flushing out that soapy water, right? And eventually, what do you have left? Mm -hmm. Is you just have clear water in the glass. And that's what happens here as we fill ourselves, fill ourselves, fill ourselves with the glory and beauty of God. It pushes out all the dirty yuck of, of other kinds of perverse pleasures. Third conviction we need to be clear about. Understand the power of your union with Christ. Romans 6. We need to understand, we need to know it deep in our bones that the power and dominion of sin has been broken in your life because of our union with Christ. We need to understand that. We need to know that deep in our soul. Now our brother Tim Pazma just did a phenomenal 
session on the grace of God. And I can't get into what he got into. There's just too much there. Romans 6 is just loaded. Uh, so I'm not going to go into it. Get a copy of his session. It was really good. But we need to understand that because of our union with Christ, we have been transformed, transferred out of the kingdom of sin and the dominion of sin into a new dominion, dominion of righteousness in the power of God and in the grace of God. We need to know that. We need to know that. We need to know that deep in our soul. So the chains that kept us in bondage to sin have been broken. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin can have a strong pull on your heart, and it will have a strong pull on your heart. But because of our union with Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin like we once were. Fourth thing we need to understand. Understand we must commit to holiness in all areas of our life. Now this is a hard one. Because it feels unreal, unrealistic. But listen to um, 1 John 2.1. My, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he is an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hallelujah. Thank you, because we are going to sin. But we will never truly make progress in holiness until we're prepared to renounce all sin. We should never be content to battle sin in these areas and excuse it in these areas. Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The operative word here in this whole sentence that's coming up is grace. Grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness, to reject it. Sinclair Ferguson again, essential to dealing with any particular form of sin is a willingness to deal with all sin. Paul does not tell us to put some sin or only embarrassing sin, but all sin to death. Now, there's a temptation to think, okay, so I decide to make one big grand renouncement of sin and poof, it's all gone. We know in our experience that that's not how that goes. Temptations will still arise every day probably every hour. And when they do, we renounce them again. We'll never make any real progress in holiness until we're prepared to renounce all sin. And here's how Paul says it in a positive way. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Just don't even look there. Look here. Look where Christ is. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Fifth thing, understand we have an adversary. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to annoy. 
<laughs> Seeking someone to pester here and there. What is the goal for you for the devil? The devil wants to devour you. Never forget that the devil is a liar and a deceiver, the father of lies. He's the accuser of the brethren. The devil is real, the devil is crafty, he is devious, and he wants to do anything he can do to slow you down, to wreck your spiritual life. That's his goal, wreck your spiritual life. He wants to derail you, to sink you into destructive spiral of sin, backsliding, shame, discouragement, ineffectiveness. That's what he wants. He wants you to quit trying. He wants you to doubt the promises of God. He wants you to doubt the goodness of God. He wants you to doubt the grace of God. So we need to be alert and watchful. The devil knows you better than you know you. And when those kinds of devilish thoughts enter your mind, slay them with the truth. Slay them. We combat the lies of the devil with the truth of Scripture. Preach the truth to yourself. Back up. Know the truth yourself, so be in the Scriptures. And pay attention to God's promises to you. Be, pay attention to your new union with Christ and what that means. And then when the devil lies to you, the Spirit can call those to mind. We'll look at that more in a little bit. Let's look at two key texts that talk about putting sin to death. Romans 8.13, Colossians 3.5. Romans 8.13, For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now the living there really can be looked at in two ways. Um, we can look at how uh, new life in Christ we have as we repent and put sin behind us and follow Christ. And then also as a believer, when you are killing sin, you are really living. Because you're, you're walking in holiness, walking in the love of Christ. Okay? Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So how do we grow in holiness? We put sin to death. How does that happen? Who does it? Is it something that God does or is it something I do? The answer is yes. God works and we work. So first let's look at the role of the Holy Spirit. Scripture is clear that sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't become holy on our, in our own strength. We cannot become holy in our own strength. It would be like me telling you, okay, if I said, Joe, carry my grand piano up to my bedroom. Okay, that would be impossible for two reasons, at least two. One, I don't have a grand piano. <laughs> and if I did, you couldn't do it on your own. You can't. Paul says that the Spirit of God is involved. How is the Spirit involved? Um, Tim did a great job talking about grace. We see grace in Scripture in, a, in at least there's a, a bunch of ways, but one, <clears throat> we see grace as the, the unmerited kindness of God, the unmerited favor of God. Then we also see God's empowering grace. Okay? God's empowering grace. 
Look again at Romans 8.13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. God supplies the power. God does His work in us by His grace through His Spirit. It's God who does the heavy lifting. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes our hearts. God's Spirit convicts us about our sin. And then He empowers us to deny the flesh and to say no to sin, to renounce it. It's God's empowering grace. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, but it's not just the Holy Spirit. So we have the role of the Spirit, we have the role of, of the sinner. He doesn't do it alone. He calls us to put sin to death in the power of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit you. Now what do you do? You watch and recognize temptations. You take steps in the power of the Spirit to put sin to death, to starve it, to deny it, to reject it, to walk in faithfulness and obedience, to push it out by loving Christ and, and worshiping Him, filling it, filling that spot with the superior pleasure of knowing God. James 4.7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a command to us. You resist. Resist. In the power of the Spirit. In the empowering grace of God. You put it to death by faith and in reliance on the Spirit's power. It's a cooperative effort. God works and we work. Our work is in surrendering to the leading and conviction, convicting of the Spirit. We believe in the promises of God. We walk in obedience to the Scriptures. It's a walk of faith in the power of God, in the promises of God, and in the empowering grace of God. And then God gets the glory when there's victory, right? Because he's the one who enabled it. Let's look at putting sin to death. Six. Remember that this is a spiritual battle. The flesh wars against the spirit. It's a war. And we've all felt that war. Galatians 5, 16-17 But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now listen, the war has been won. The big war has been won through our union with Christ. Again, we have to remember that. Romans 6. But there's battles, and there's skirmishes, all the time, all the time, all the time. We still have to do at battle with the appetites of the flesh, the lies of the devil, the lure of the world. Sinclair Ferguson said, Sin may have lost its dominance over us, but it retains its power in us. It is sin still. The price of victory is constant vigilance. Yes, there is grace to cover all our sin, but that grace leads us to mortify it, not to tolerate it. The Westminster Confession speaks about the believer's experience of a continual and irreconcilable war between the flesh and the spirit. This war is possible only because we have already been delivered from the reign of sin. For only then we are free to fight against our former sovereign. 
The war is also inevitable because we have not yet been fully and finally delivered from the presence of sin. It remains like a squatter in our lives. And squatters are notoriously difficult to evict. In the case of sin, the only remedy for the situation is that we put it to death. Think about it this way. Paul said that there are two things that are true in Christian believers. Jesus Christ dwells in them, and sin continues to dwell in them. So long as these are both true, so long we will need to go on putting sin to death. So we go to war. Vigorously put it to death. Do not give it room. Choke it. Choke it. How do we do that? A, watch. Watch, pray, slay. Watch. Be on the alert to sin's temptation. Examine yourself. Know yourself. Know your particular vulnerabilities. Know where you are tempted. Now, probably a lot of you already know that, where your particular temptations bubble up. But there's also blind spots we, <laughs> we have in our lives. So we need to be a student of ourselves and know our particular weaknesses, where we're vulnerable. The devil knows where you're most vulnerable, and that's exactly where he's going to poke. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 1 Corinthians 16, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. Keep alert with all perseverance, Ephesians 6. So we need to be alert. Alert to what? The devil's lies and schemes. The devil is constantly working and scheming to bring you down. Be alert to your particular weaknesses. Be alert to occasions, circumstances, and seasons where you tend to fall and give in. There are certain things you know. Certain kinds of times in my life where I'm really tired, where I'm worn out, where I'm in a particular kind of circumstance. These are the kind of things that tend to be more temptation for me. So be alert to those things. Be alert to the lies of the world. Be alert. Watch. The second thing is pray. When you feel the temptation, stop and ask for God's help right now. Oh God, would you give me strength right now? I need you right now. No delay. You feel the temptation starting to rise. You feel the pulse. Whatever it is, you know the signs. Stop. God, would you help me right now? I need you right now. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that's your time of need right there. Approach the throne of grace right there. It's in prayer that God goes to work to strengthen us right then. It's through prayer that we appropriate the enabling power of the Spirit. So what do we pray? I put you a few things there. You know what you need to pray. Here are some things, some suggestions. Confess your weakness and dependency. Oh God, I am weak right here. I need you. Ask for strength in body, strength in mind, strength in conviction. Thank God that you are a new creation with the new power over sin. Thank God that this sin has no power over you. Preach the truth to yourself and pray it to God and thank God for those promises. Thank you that I'm no longer under the dominion of this thing. 
Ask God to enable you by the power of His Spirit to resist and walk in holiness. And then walk by faith and obedience. That's when God gives you the grace, right there. So don't skip this. It's vitally important. And pride would keep you from praying. Prayerlessness in the face of temptation and testing is telling God, no thank you, I'm strong enough on my own. Let me tell you, you are not strong enough on your own. No, thank you God, I don't need your help. I can get along without you, I got this. That's a lie from the pit. Your first action in the face of temptation is to pray. And pray right now. Slay. See, slay. Catch the temptation fast. First, James, uh, James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see the progression. Okay? You're lured and enticed by your desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And then sin brings forth death. So the key is to catch that progression early and fast. The temptation arises. Catch it now. Stop. Pray. Ask God for help right then. I love this. John Piper has the five-second rule. Let me just read what, what he wrote. He was talking about um, overcoming lust and sexual immorality. He said, now all of this applies to lust and sexual temptation because those are thoughts and tests we have to resist. We have to take hold of a promise of Christ, believe it, and then use it to push, actively push, the thought out of our minds. That's where, because again, remember I said, you know, sin comes, bubbles up from our heart and our thoughts, okay? So you have to catch it there before it becomes action, right? He said, you've got about five seconds to decide whether you're going to let the lustful thought stay or push it out. We say, no, no, no. He says, I mean, I do this. I'm not kidding here. Some lustful thought or some image comes into your mind, and you've got about five seconds to decide whether you're going to let it take over or whether you're going to push it on, push it, push on it with, no, you're out of here. In Jesus' name, you're out of here. You must direct your attention to some superior promise. Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. He said this. You're out of here. And you keep pushing until it's gone. I heard one guy say, you know, if you're, if you're really struggling with whatever, lust or whatever, he said, memorize Romans 6 and 7 and 8. <laughs> Those three chapters. You start falling into a tough temptation, start reciting Romans 6 into 7, into 8. And eventually you're going to be pushing out that stuff. Remember we talked about how to push out those kinds of thoughts. So that's what I mean by resistance. The first half of the transformation. I want to encourage you that even though it may feel or sound exhausting at first, it really does yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness. We battle temptation with reliance on the power of the Spirit and truth. Have a plan. Know your vulnerabilities. What are you going to do when the temptation arises? What's your plan? Have a plan. 
Don't be caught flat-footed. When the temptation arises, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray right now. And you know those particular areas of your temptation? What scripture am I going to quote? Memorize those things and be ready. What, what am I going to preach to myself? Number two, flee. Paul said, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. James 4.7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, we know what happened with Joseph, right? I don't need to rehearse that story uh, in too much detail. We know that Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife was after him. She was lusting after him, and she approached him day after day, propositioning him, and he would resist, resist, resist. Finally, she grabbed his coat, and he wiggled out of his coat, and he got out of danger. He fleed. Flew. Fled. He fled. What was it? He left. That's what he did. He flew. The point is, if you're unable to handle the circumstances you're in without sinning, you may need to physically remove yourself from the circumstance. Don't toy with it. Mac says, victories are won only when we realize that temptation is a given, when we prepare ourselves ahead of time to resist, and when we immediately resist when it comes our way. Being ready to act and following through is a vital part of fulfilling Romans 8.13 and Colossians 3.5. Third, replace tempting thoughts. Take every thought captive to, to obey Christ. Immediately replace the tempting thoughts with thoughts of God, promises of God, spiritual truths. The time to deal with the problem of whatever it is, temper, lust, whatever, is at the very moment you feel the heat rising. Again, catch it fast. Replace thoughts of temptation with scripture. I don't know if you guys have seen this book or if you have it. Have you seen this one? This is really good. This is kind of a unique book that Pastor Armin Tiffey, founding pastor of Cornerstone Community Church, he put together a great list of scriptures. Okay, If you're struggling with whatever, adultery, put off that. Here's what you put on. Here are scriptural insights. If you need fuel for this, here's a good resource for you. Four, starve it. One of the weapons we must use for killing sin is to starve it. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for it. We provision armies with the supplies they need in order to keep fighting. You provision your sin by keeping things that are tempting you around. Pick on something. I don't know if, if, you're, if your particular troublesome sin is drunkenness. Don't have alcohol in your house. Make no provision for it. You may need to not Go to a particular place that serves alcohol where you used to go to drink because it's too much of a temptation. Avoid the place. Starve it. 
Don't put yourself into tempting situations if you can help it. Five, amputate if necessary. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's serious. There are some sins that are just dragging you down and killing you. You may need to cut it off, whatever that means. your temptation is pornography, block every avenue you have access to. Every avenue. Be ruthless about it. Tim Challies wrote this great book. It was actually Pastor Paul here asked Tim Challies to write this book. He did a, it's the best book on how do you avoid it says, my kids are viewing pornography. Just great, great solutions. Practical things on Cutting off avenues to the things that are stru- you're struggling with. And that particular area is a good one. Um, remember Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were in the perfect environment. And up slithers a serpent. And they found out fairly quickly that in their own strength and wisdom they were no match for the serpent. He was crafty. He caused them to doubt God's goodness. He lured them to want what God commanded them to avoid. And they fell. Here's what Max said about that. I thought it was kind of interesting. He said, This is how Eve made her mistake. In Genesis 3, Eve allowed the devil to give her his sales pitch. She allowed him to give her his sales pitch. The moment the devil showed up in the form of the serpent, she should have said, Goodbye, Mr. Serpent. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to hear a word you have to say. I have already heard from God and the matter is settled. We might as well not discuss it. But Eve did not do that. Even though, at that point, she was a godly woman living in a perfect environment, she allowed the devil to give her his sales pitch and quickly found out that she was no match for him, and you are not either. Where did Eve go wrong? Eve did not resist the first inclination or thought of sin. She allowed the devil to give her his sales pitch, and she was no match for him. We're really good at that, listening to the sales pitch. Well, a couple final thoughts. If you do fall and give into temptation, and the unlikely event that you do fall into temptation, what should you do? Confess it quickly and specifically. Confess it quickly and specifically. Repent. Get up and move on. Learn from failure. Think about, get in the habit of thinking about what went wrong just there. How can I in the power of the Spirit, not do that again. That's what repenting means, right? Turning and going the other way. Killing sin does not mean that that particular sin will no longer be a temptation for us. We put sin to death each time it rears its ugly head. Over time, that temptation will lessen in severity and lessen in frequency as we make spiritual progress. 
but we will struggle with temptation for the rest of our days in the flesh. But we lean hard on the Spirit of God and we push it out by knowing God better, loving Him, savoring His beauty and His majesty, looking for that superior pleasure in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this power and ability you give us by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for the, the beauty of Christ. Thank you for the glory of the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you sought us and bought us by the power, by the love of God, by the death of Christ and his resurrection. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin. Thank you that we're under a new dominion. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us, that you pursue us, that you empower us, and that you fill us with a joy that cannot be matched by any sinful pleasure. Help us, Lord Jesus, to do battle. Help us to have insight in the lives of our counselees as they struggle with sin. Help us, Lord Jesus, to help them. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.